0: Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the HSF Banking Litigation podcast. Having had our first special edition in episode 4, we're back with our regular monthly update on key judgments in the sector. I'm David Barr and I'm here as always with uh, Kerry Morgan, our Banking Litigation PSL, or our Banking Lit whiz, uh, And we are joined today by Sarah Penfold, one of our associates here in the team. Great to have you with us, Sarah. First up, we have a few procedural developments that are always important to keep on top of. Uh, Kerry, you're going to talk us through these ones. Um, firstly, you've got a, a case looking at the collateral use of documents, and this does seem to be popping up quite often in the context of those sort of large cross-border claims and investigations. So, what's what's this first case all about?
1: Yes, absolutely. So we're seeing more of these cases and the trend of the courts definitely seems to be to take a more restrictive approach to requests for collateral use. And here we have another example with the court ultimately refusing permission for collateral use, even in quite extreme circumstances. And this is the case of ACL Netherlands and Lynch.
0: And just before you sort of carry on with that one, can you just quickly remind us why the court's uh, permission is needed for, for collateral use?
1: Oh, yeah, of course. So, under the CPR, disclosed documents and witness statements can only be used for the purpose of the proceedings in which they are disclosed. So, there are a few exceptions to this, including where the court gives permission. So, here, one of the parties was seeking permission to provide disclosed documents and witness statements to the FBI, and this was in response to a US grand jury subpoena requesting the documents. The High Court took a strict approach and found that the applicant hadn't made out cogent and persuasive reasons in favour of granting permission.
2: A pretty tricky situation then for the party seeking permission, having to deal with a US subpoena and the FBI on one side, and then this decision of the English High Court on the other.
0: The... uh... The words rock and hard place spring to light. Yeah,
1: Well, yeah, that's ultimately what the result was for the party seeking permission. And it just goes to show that just because there might be a legal compulsion to produce documents doesn't mean the party is home and dry when it comes to applications for collateral use. And I'm flagging this one as for banks, they really do need to be aware of it because of the FCA's powers of compulsion. It means it's a situation in which a bank could well find itself exposed to. And we've got a blog post on this decision, for which I think the show notes should include a link. And then next up I have Elite and Barclays. It's a very different context here. And this was a Court of Appeal decision which came as part of a long-running litigation relating to alleged mis-selling of IRHPs. So essentially the court refused to allow the claimants to bring claims in unlawful means conspiracy because they were not adequately pleaded. And this case serves as a reminder of the difficulty in getting a conspiracy claim off the ground. And it makes clear that the claimant has to fully plead their claim and all its particulars at the outset. They can't simply hope that something will turn up in disclosure to substantiate their pleadings at a later date. And in fact, this judgment subject to any appeal to the Supreme Court means that elite's claim against Barclays has finally been disposed of. The majority of the claims had previously been struck out by the court with no permission to appeal. And it was just this conspiracy element that was rumbling on. Uh, we have e-bulletins on all of the many judgments following the course of these proceedings, including this one, for which there's a link in the show notes. So do have a look at those.
0: just seems a, a, a bit of a saga, that one. Um, well, moving on then uh, to you, Sarah, you've got a, a few cases for us looking at contractual interpretation and, and sort of contract law more generally, haven't you?
2: That's right. I have a few cases in this category, two cases directly involving financial institutions and one looking at the question of relational contracts, which I think is quite a concerning concept that's developing particularly for retail banks. But to kick us off, I have Deutsche Trustee and Duchess. Here, the High Court looked at the contractual documentation in a collateralised loan obligation transaction, I won't go into the facts in detail as they're a bit dense, but the dispute revolved around whether an incentive fee was payable to the collateral manager when the equity noteholders exercised a right of early redemption. The court said that the incentive fee was not triggered by early redemption, applying the well-established approach to contractual interpretation. As far as the court was concerned, the documentation was pretty clear on the whole, particularly in the context of the transaction. And in a nod to ReSigma Finance, the court emphasised the particular, even paramount importance of the words used in a traded instrument that's going to
1: exist for a long time and pass through many hands. So did the court still look at whether the commercial background and the factual matrix pointed to a different interpretation?
2: Yes, but it said that the rival commercial constructions did not suggest a different interpretation to the specific language used. There was an interesting argument on this actually. The collateral manager argued that if its fee was not payable on early redemption, This would give the equity note holders a perverse incentive to exercise their right of early redemption just to deprive the collateral manager of its incentive fee. The court's fairly pragmatic approach was to say that if the notes were performing sufficiently well, that the incentive fee was triggered during the lifetime of the notes, it seemed more likely that the note holders would stick with it and pay the incentive fee from quarter to quarter rather than redeeming early just to escape the incentive fee. It's our understanding that the High Court has granted permission to appeal, so we'll keep an eye on that. But we do have an e-bulletin on this decision, and I believe there's a link in the show
0: notes. Absolutely. And uh, next, we're off on a a trip to Greendale. Um, Although this judgment is a a lot less soothing than an episode of Postman Pat, it runs into hundreds of pages, doesn't it? So um, what have you got for us?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Long judgment from the High Court in Bates and Post Office. Apart from the Postman Pat connection... What interests us in this case is the fact that in a commercial context between the post office and a number of its sub-postmasters, the court found that certain contracts were relational contracts and therefore subject to an implied duty to act in good faith. For those of you not familiar with the relational contract argument, it goes back to a case called Yam Seng, where the court said that although the obligation of good faith is not implied in all commercial contracts,
1: it will be implied where a contract is a relational one. So, did the court give any guidance on how to assess whether a contract is relational?
2: Yeah. In the post office case, the court noted a number of factors. So, for example, whether there's a long-term relationship between the parties, whether there's a trust and confidence between them in performing the contract. The court also said that a single factor won't decide the question and that there mustn't be an express term in the contract which prevents a duty of good faith being implied. As I mentioned this is of interest in the retail banking sector where relational contracts have been alleged but thankfully rejected by the court so far. Back in September last year we covered the case of Standish and RBS. In that case the court was dealing with a borrower in default. The borrower alleged the existence of an implied overarching customer agreement in addition to the facility agreements which said that it was a relational contract.
0: Just to sort of jump in there would be completely clear. So that essentially the borrower there was saying that there was a whole separate agreement that should be implied into the relationship.
2: Exactly. And the claimants argued that this implied umbrella agreement in turn included implied duties of good faith. The court actually referred to this umbrella agreement as a mysterious creature <laughs> whose sole function appeared to be a vehicle into which terms could be implied in that case, the court took the sensible view that no implied contract or implied terms existed. But the post office judgment came to a different conclusion. This was on the basis that certain contracts, which were expressed, not implied, were categorized as relational contracts and subject to the good faith obligation. While not a banking case, it's an example of the court endorsing these relational contracts in a commercial context, so it's worth keeping an eye on. As an interesting twist in this particular tale, the post office has applied for the judge to recuse himself, saying his findings gave the clear impression that he had already formed a view on the case and would not be impartial at subsequent trials. This was a split trial process. And this application specifically referred to findings on the relational contract aspect. The Judges' decision on the recusal application is that he should not be recused, but this will be an interesting one to watch in terms of the appeals process, which has the potential to directly affect the issue we've discussed here. And again, we have a litigation post and a link in the show notes to that case. And I will cover my final contract law case briefly. It's Chudley and Clydesdale Bank. Here the Court of Appeal found that a letter of instruction between a bank and its customer conferred a benefit on third party investors and importantly those investors were not customers of the bank. The case looked at the 1999 Contracts Rights of Third Parties Act and turned on the level of identification of those third party investors which was required for the contract to confer a benefit on them under the Act. you will know the Act requires parties to be expressly identified in the contract by name as a member of a class or as answering a particular description. In this case, the court gave the Act quite a broad interpretation, which isn't necessarily great news for financial institutions. But we don't have time to go into the details here, but you can read our e-bulletin, and again, there's a link to that in the show notes.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for that. Um, And Kerry, finishing off then with our, our deep dive... Um, Lehman Brothers event of default loss. We are, of course, talking about uh, ISDA master agreements, and you've got a case looking at the uh, the '92 agreement and how the test sort of differs from the 2002 agreement, haven't you?
1: Yes. So uh, for the deep dive this month, I've chosen Lehman Brothers and Klaus chira Uh, Before jumping into an analysis of this case, I think it's worth highlighting that this is the latest in a long line of ISDA cases which have been born out of the financial crisis and collapse of Lehman Brothers over 10 years ago. And once again, the question for the court was whether when the collapse of Lehman caused an inevitable event of default under various hedging transactions, and this triggered the need for the defendants to determine closeout payments, whether those payments were calculated correctly. So in this case, the parties had elected loss as the methodology for calculating those payments. And so here the High Court has given some important guidance on the limits of a determining party's discretion to determine loss under the 1992 ISDA. So a quick reminder that upon an event of default, the standard for the determining party to meet when calculating loss is different under 1992 and 2002 ISDA. And I think that's one that's quite easy to forget, but very important to remember. So under 1992, the standard is rationality, whereas under 2002, it is objective reasonableness.
0: And that's uh, very nice categories, but what, what what does it mean exactly in practice?
1: Well, yeah. So in practice, in practice, this means that the 1992 Isda gives the determining party more latitude, and the courts are less likely to interfere in the calculation of loss. Okay. So in the classical formulation of the test, the defaulting party can only challenge the determination if it's irrational, capricious, or arbitrary. <laughs> But what this decision tells us is even under 1992 ISDA, there are limitations on the determining party's freedom to determine loss, even though the standard is rationality. So we've got a banking litigation e-bulletin, as ever, highlighting the key limitations identified, which I would definitely recommend that you take a look at if you're interested in ISDA developments. Um, And I don't have time to go into them all here. Uh, and they also probably wouldn't work very well in the podcast medium. Um, But I will flag one um, of particular interest, which is the court's confirmation that common law principles of remoteness must apply in relation to the calculation of loss under 1992 ISDA, just in the same way as they apply to contractual damages generally. So this is probably best explained by way of example, and the facts of the instant case, for rather obvious reasons, work pretty well well. So in this case, the original trade required what was to become the determining party, Klaus Czera, to place collateral. And that was because of its poor credit quality. Uh, But then when Lehman Brothers collapsed, that collateral was tied up. So when Klaus Czera was seeking indicative quotations for replacement trades for the purpose of calculating loss, it asked for indicative quotations on an uncollateralised basis.
2: So were the uncollateralised quotes much higher?
1: Yeah, yeah, they were significantly higher than they would have been on a collateralised basis. Um, And this is because it reflected the greater risk for the counterparty. But the court said that the indicative quotations for replacement transactions should have been on a collateralised basis where those quotations were used to calculate loss. And this was even though this was not possible in the real world. This was because, applying common law principles to the calculation of the contractual damages, the loss claimed was not in the reasonable contemplation of the parties. So, in a nutshell, at the time the hedges were originally entered into, it would not have been in the parties' contemplation that Klaus Czera would be entitled to recover the extra amount related to having to enter into an uncollateralised replacement as a result of being unable to get its collateral back from Lehman. So that makes sense to me because otherwise the definition of loss in the 1992 ISDA would effectively provide a de facto indemnity against all losses suffered as a result of an event of default. So some more helpful clarification from the court on the 1992 ISDA.
0: Interesting stuff. Thanks, Gary, And thanks to you too, Sarah, for joining us this week. That's it for this episode. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and, of course, take a look at those links in the show notes for more details on many of the cases covered. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.